0: In 1881, the territory of Arizona was in an uproar. The general grumblings and murmuring of the average citizen were matched by the scathing denouncing articles in the newspapers, and clamoring at the highest levels of political power. We've seen these situations before, but the cause of this one was, in my estimation at least, unique. Because this time, all the chatter wasn't about marauding Apache though that was still a thing. And it wasn't about the failure of the military to catch, said Marauding Apache, though we will see that again too. And it wasn't about trying to stave off a neighboring state from carving up and absorbing some of the territory, though a short-lived bill to send most of southwestern Arizona to California did pop up. It wasn't even about gold, silver, or copper, though interest in those precious minerals did play their own small part in this uproar. Nope. The fervor was caused by a trip the territorial governor had taken to Washington and New York. Well, to be specific, it was about the last three trips he had taken back east. And it would turn out that this last trip was the straw that broke the camel's back. What's so wrong with a cross-country excursion, you ask? Well, nothing in and of itself. But in this case, the governor always seemed to have the hardest time coming back to work. And that is today's story. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the History of Arizona. (music) Episode 76, The Absentee Governor. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you enjoyed last week's spooky diversion, and it was just enough of a palate cleanser to get you back in the mood for, shall we say, less speculative history. When we last left off, we were in the late 1870s and had explored the governorship of Anson P.K. Safford and the silver boom that hit the state. Those two things were inseparably connected, as Safford was, above all else, a businessman who saw his political office as a means of enriching himself. Of course, that didn't separate him too much from his contemporaries, and I know it's an easy joke, but I'm going to do it anyway. It didn't separate him much from politicians today, either. As we discussed two episodes ago, Safford particularly enriched himself from selling his considerable mining interest in Tombstone, which netted him $140,000, nearly a quarter of what Ed Shefflin received for his shares. But the other main interest of Safford was the railroad. I mentioned back in episode 73 that one of the reasons Safford was suggested to be the governor of Arizona in the first place was to help bring the Iron Horse through the territory. An all-weather Southern Railroad line has been a dream going on decades now, and everyone was just salivating at the prospect of the tracks and the money pulling into an Arizona station. It was not uncommon for public figures of the time to be given honorary positions on new railroad companies, so we find Safford on the commission for the Texas and Pacific Railroad in 1871, and he might have even served as an agent of the Southern Pacific Line. He also began to promote heavily the building of spur lines inside the territory itself to connect the few population centers that existed. Unfortunately, it would not be until 1877, the year that Safford stepped down from the governorship, that a railroad would finally make it to Arizona. Specifically, it was the Southern Pacific Line, coming in from the west, that finally made it to Yuma on September 30, 1877, with great fanfare. The plan was to gradually build across the 32nd parallel eastward into New Mexico, However, it's then that the owner learned of the silver strike in Tombstone on the opposite side of the territory and started fearing that the Texas-Pacific Railroad would swoop in from the east and build the track itself. So, like any self-respecting robber baron, the owner bought up all the potential river crossings between Yuma and the Needles to block any competitors and then broke out the big guns. Bribery. Specifically, the railroad began to cough-cough, lobby the state assembly and Safford himself for concessions. The amusing anecdote to this is that the Southern Pacific turned over a good deal of funds to Safford to spread out among the legislature, but he surprised them by returning a portion of it, with the humorous explanation that Arizonans were not as expensive as the railroad executives thought. Of course, the Southern Pacific wasn't the only game in town, and the Texas Pacific Railroad had an ace up its sleeve as well. Specifically, it had somehow garnered from General McDowell up in California, a license to build a railroad line across the Yuma Indian Reservation, something that the Southern Pacific had not thought possible. So in response, it decided to illegally cut across the reservation to block its competition. Finally, the two would simply agree to compromise and join forces. The result of this would be that by March 1880, the railroad finally rode into Tucson, and 10 months later, it would connect with another line west of El Paso. So, something like 24 years after it was originally conceived by the likes of Jefferson Davis and others, the southern all-weather route had become a reality. And after joining with the Atchison, Topeka, and Santa Fe line, as well as with a line coming up from Sonora, Arizona had officially become connected with the rest of the world. And we'll get more into what this means for the territory going forward, but I want to turn back to politics. Because Safford is now out and making his fortune, so it's time to turn to his successor. That successor was a man named John Philo Hoyt. One historian described him as a, quote, competent executive, but couldn't give him much more of a description because, well, he's not going to be around for too long. Hoyt was a native of Ohio a Civil War veteran, a lawyer, prosecutor, and speaker for the Michigan legislature. In 1876, he was appointed secretary for the Arizona Territory by President Grant, where he appears to have done some work helping refine the territory's law books. He seemed like a decent fellow, so when Safford declined to run again, he was made the new governor. Even after his appointment, he asked to keep on as secretary until his replacement arrived. Now, the history book that mentions this fact says he did this because of several pending lawsuits and ensuring that nothing fell through the cracks. A more cynical reading of this could be that he just wanted to draw two paychecks for a bit, but one of his next moves shows that he might have actually been a conscientious civil servant. Soon after becoming governor, he requested a legal opinion about whether it was proper for him to continue to argue cases while serving in office. This was something of a common practice at the time, and Safford himself had argued cases in front of a jury that did not conflict with his gubernatorial interest. Hoyt thought there was nothing improper in him still taking cases for clients, provided that the necessary safeguards were in place, but some people in the territory raised a bit of a stink about it. Wanting to be above reproach, Hoyt asked the Secretary of the Interior if there was anything in their policies that would forbid him from doing so, and the reply was, well... No, but we still don't want you to do it anyway. I bring up this innocuous little incident mainly because there's not much to cover about Hoyt's governorship. For reasons we'll get into in just a moment, he was only in office for a little more than a year, and seeing as the territorial legislature only met once every two years, there wasn't even a session during his time in the hot seat. We do get some snippets of his activities from newspapers of the time, which talk about him touring schools in southern Arizona, visiting the San Carlos Reservation and adjacent military posts, before rushing back to Prescott to ultimately commute the sentence of a man scheduled to be hanged. During his tenure, he also traveled back east to see to his business affairs in Michigan and to have some dentistry work done, mainly because he didn't seem to trust his teeth to any of the dentists in Frontier, Arizona. Now, like I've referenced several times now, Hoyt's term in office was cut short. But not because he was promoted or transferred or because he became too sick to carry on or even because he died. No, he was flat out dropped and replaced on June 12, 1878. Bumped because his successor had some high-powered friends who got President Rutherford B. Hayes to appoint him and oust Hoyt. As sort of a consolation prize, Hoyt was offered the governorship of Idaho, but he declined, feeling that the previous governor had been removed unfairly and that the whole process would make the people of Idaho not willing to accept him. Instead, he finished out his duties as governor while waiting for his replacement to get there, then decided to temporarily quit the civil service. He eventually moved to Washington, where he would be a successful banker and real estate provider be president of Washington's Constitutional Convention, sit on the territorial and later state Supreme Court, and serve as a regent and professor of law at the University of Washington. Now that he's gone, let's turn to the man who so unceremoniously replaced him, none other than the pathfinder himself, John C. Fremont. I first mentioned Fremont back in episode 23, if you can remember back that far. If not, go back and give it a listen. It's on the website, azhistorypodcast.com, where I mentioned that he was a mountain man in the 1840s and had earned himself the honorific, the Pathfinder. He had been given the title after accompanying a scientific expedition in the 1830s and then helping find new routes to both California and Oregon in the following decade. Fremont was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1813. His parents, a French-Canadian schoolteacher and the daughter of a socially prominent family, had run away together after having an affair. His father would die by the time he was five, but John had a restless, relentless spirit about him and managed to find sponsorship to Charleston College at the age of 16. However, he was expelled three months before graduation because of what the faculty considered quote, habitual irregularity and incorrigible negligence, end quote. Now, part of that was tied up with a girl from the West Indies that Fremont had fallen head over heels in love with. But he managed to somehow pull his focus back together and went on to eventually graduate and teach mathematics before joining the Corps of Topographical Engineers. Once again, flashing back to episode 23, I mentioned that he had joined the Bear Flag Revolt in California and actually became the territory's military governor but due to some really unclear communications, he was thrown into prison on charges of mutiny and insubordination before being pardoned by President Polk. These subsequent decades were not the best for him, and, at least in my reading, were a long-running series of setbacks, with a few exceptions. After resigning from the military following his disastrous term as Military Governor of California, he would lead a disastrous expedition over the winter of 1848-49, where he would lose a third of his men and all of his equipment. In the early 1850s, he became California's first U.S. Senator, and in 1856, he was nominated to be the first Republican candidate for the presidency of the United States. But since we all know that Abraham Lincoln, elected four years later, is destined to be the first Republican president of the United States, It won't come as a surprise if I say that he lost to James Buchanan. He would take part in the Civil War as a major general and took command of the Department of the West, headquartered in St. Louis. However, he lost his job after issuing an Emancipation Proclamation for the state of Missouri in August 1861. Fearing that this move would radicalize the border states who were on the fence about staying in the Union as it was, Lincoln, still two years away from taking the bold step himself, ordered Fremont to rescind the order. He refused, and with that, he was again out the door. Following the Civil War, he had gotten himself into railroad speculation, which ended up with him being virtually penniless by the end of the 1870s. And that's when friends stepped in and petitioned President Hayes to set up Fremont with the cushy gig of the Arizona governorship to help alleviate some of his financial woes. Indeed, most histories you will read describe Fremont as needing the job. I should note also that there was some inside baseball political machinations going on here, as apparently Fremont had acquiesced to Republican leaders in 1864 and refrained from running for president as a third-party candidate, which would have potentially split the vote and caused Lincoln to lose. He was also apparently somehow instrumental in the 1876 election of Hayes, who was already a great admirer of Fremont. Finally, I should note that, despite his rather spotty record, Fremont was still incredibly popular back East, where tales of his daring exploits charting the West made him a bona fide celebrity. That's why no one raised too much of a fuss when Hoyt was pushed aside, though the Arizona Citizen newspaper did write, The nomination of General Fremont for the governorship of Arizona is understood to have been made independently of the wishes of the Arizona people the president having appointed Fremont purely for personal motives. It is well known that the latter had been unfortunate in business affairs and lost all his property. He is said to be anxious to go on to Arizona, attracted, it is believed, by the mineral prospects of the country. End quote. With the benefit of hindsight, we can now say that they were not wrong. But whatever the reason Fremont now found himself in the hot seat— He was there, so we have to take his governorship on its own merits. Unfortunately, those were in short supply. The newly appointed governor took a slow trip to Arizona, being wined, dined, and feted in Chicago, Omaha, and San Francisco before actually arriving. Once in the territory, roughly three months after his appointment, he had to quickly prepare for the 10th Legislative Assembly in January 1879, And I will divert here to note that this legislative session that Fremont was to address was again meeting in Prescott, not Tucson, where it had been since 1867 when McCormick had moved it there to get the necessary votes to become the territory's congressional delegate. But even though it had been a decade now, and the legislature had actually voted in 1875 to make Tucson the quote-unquote permanent capital— the powerful bloc from Yavapai County refused to accept it as a fait accompli. Prescott was still a growing city, and Yavapai County had considerable political clout. Of the 27 members of the Legislative Council, 12 were from Yavapai, while only 7 were from Pima County. It's almost a disappointment, but I can't find any report of bitter feuding or nefarious politicking about the vote in 1877 to have the next session meet in Prescott. Even Marshall Trimble, who is always good for a yarn about such things, is silent on this issue. So I'm afraid all that we are left with is just to note that, despite voting just two years earlier to make Tucson the territory's permanent capital, the legislature up and moved back to Prescott. Don't worry, though. The next time the capital changes hands, there will be a lot more bitter feuding and nefarious politicking involved. But back to the main story. During his first official message to the assembly, Fremont made a few proposals. Building new roads, building a larger government assay office, those sort of things. And then he really swung for the fences. Because Fremont proposed tapping into the headwaters of the Sea of Cortez with a canal and flooding the Salton Sink, or what today is called the Imperial Valley in California, to create hundreds of new acres of arable farmland. To be fair, this was not a new idea, and Fremont was not the only person to propose it. Indeed, water used to flow in there naturally before sediment from the Colorado River had dammed it. But the plan was still lampooned as being unrealistic to almost outlandish. The New York Tribune wrote, quote, Governor Fremont will be many years older before the tides will ebb and flow in the desert sea, end quote. The Arizona citizen, who really had an axe to grind with Fremont, harshly commented that the governor was, quote, as ignorant as the emir of Afghanistan of Arizona affairs, end quote. Once again, to be fair to Fremont, this idea wouldn't die and would actually happen in the early 1900s, forming the Salton Sea, southeast of the California city of Indio. Unfortunately, the Salton Sea has turned out to be an ecological disaster, but Now I'm definitely getting lost in the weeds. Though Fremont's ideas were mostly overlooked, the legislature did push through a few ideas of its own. During this session, they passed a bill licensing gambling with a $300 quarterly fee, of which half would go to the territory and half to an individual county. This law to make sure gambling was kosher was pushed through by the powerful president of the Territorial Council, Fred G. Hughes of Tucson. Behind him were, wouldn't you know it, a host of gamblers and saloon keepers hoping to make some money off of people losing their hard-earned cash. And wouldn't you know it, Hughes himself was known to be an avid gambler. Speaking of gambling, the legislature also passed one of my favorite bills to date, mainly because it was all one big joke. You see, a representative from Maricopa County named J.D. Romberg had lost a good deal of money on a horse race because he bet on a slow pony. In a huff due to this humiliation, he introduced a bill to entirely ban horse racing across the territory. His fellow representatives, who were all well aware of his reasons for proposing such a measure, decided to have a good laugh at his expense. So, each in turn rose up and praised the bill's merits to the hilt before claiming that the citizens of their individual county were not ready for such an enlightened change and asked that their particular county be exempted. This went through the entire legislature until finally Rumberg's fellow representative from Maricopa County arose. He again extolled the virtue of his colleague's bill before asking that Maricopa County be exempted. Well, almost all of Maricopa County. A small piece of land along the Black Canyon Road northwest of Phoenix would still fall under the horse racing ban. And that slice of property just so happened to be owned by, wait for it, Rumberg. Early state historian James H. McClintock goes on to say that the bill was actually voted on and passed as amended, though it was never printed or put into any official state statutes. And who says political history can't be fun? A proposal of the governors that was actually seized upon by the legislature was the establishment of a lottery, patterned after a similar one in Louisiana. It functioned as all lotteries do. People spend a lot of money on tickets, with a few receiving cash prizes. And anything the government took in ostensibly spent on schools and constructing a Capitol building. This was apparently the brainchild of a man named Thomas Finch, a Nevada politician and one of a handful of men, all from outside the territory, who had Fremont's ear, which they seemed to be able to bend to this or that policy that was aligned with this or that business interest of theirs. However, the drawing never happened mainly because public faith in the lottery was shaken thanks to excoriating editorials published in the Arizona Citizen in Tucson and the Territorial Expositor in Phoenix. Though, like many editorials from the time, they were more vitriol than fact, they swayed opinion enough that the lottery was delayed, and those who had bought a ticket were advised that they could redeem it for full cash value from the Goldwater family of Prescott. Prescott. Years later, Barry Goldwater would talk about how his grandfather had shouldered paying for the advertising, printing, and then buying back of all the lottery tickets. But the reason I bring this particular incident up is because where Fremont was for all of this. Namely, not in Arizona. He had used the lottery as an excuse to head back east, ostensibly to sell tickets and to drum up interest in mining ventures in the territory. He appeared to do very well, but mostly for himself and his own business interests, rather than anything he did for the territory at large. Still, this business kept him out of the territory for a full six months in 1879, and people back in Prescott, Tucson, and Phoenix began to think that they had an absentee governor. The territory's delegate for Congress, John G. Campbell, said of Fremont, quote, "...so far we cannot tell what sort of governor he will make as he has spent most of his time in the East." End quote. This continued in 1880 when another junket back east took him a full seven months. By the time he actually came back to the territory, he had but two months to actually get caught up to speed on the issues before addressing the 1881 legislature. In the meantime, Fremont's blatant embrace of carpetbaggers and others who simply wanted to glut themselves on what Arizona had to offer caused his popularity to severely plummet. But more than that, it also broke the so-called federal ring that had run the show under Goodwin, McCormick, and Safford. Republicans hadn't even called themselves by that name until 1880, mainly because they could use terms such as unionists, which sounded very feely-goody in the aftermath of the Civil War, and had secured a broad coalition of support over receiving federal contracts. However, that came crashing down in the Congressional Delegate Election of 1880, when the Republican candidate was soundly defeated by none other than Democrat Granville Aury, who you will recall had actually been elected as a delegate to the Confederate Congress way back when. Well, normally that would be enough to sink him, in the carpetbagger crazy administration of Fremont, the fact that he was an old settler with deep roots in Arizona was enough to get him elected. There was also some more complicated politics involved in this, since the solidly Democratic Tucson was now being challenged by the new Republican bad boy in their county, Tombstone. But that would be taken care of soon enough, as in the next session of the legislature, Tombstone would be carved out into the newly created Cochise County. But Fremont's popularity continued to tank, especially given his continual absence from the territory he was ostensibly the governor of. McClintock states his opinion that Fremont simply thought of himself as too big a fish to be stuck in a little pond like Arizona. The governor would write President Garfield in March 1881 that the legislature was largely democratic and bent on passing bills disagreeable to the best interests of the territory, right before he left the territory once again, this time with the excuse that he was going to round up arms to help fight the Apache. Territorial historian Jay Wagner is quick to say that, more than likely, he was actually going to promote his mining interest and seek more financial backing for some copper deposits that he wanted to develop in Jerome. While he was off on this side trip, the territorial secretary, really the acting governor since Fremont wasn't around, submitted a report to the Secretary of the Interior. This report, which seemed calculated to line the secretary up as a good replacement candidate for the top seat, Contain references to the local citizenry being upset about carpetbaggers coming into the territory. Then it said straight up that the duly appointed governor of the territory should be forced to return to Arizona or he had to resign. Now, there was no doubt that this secretary wanted the governor's job mainly because he wrote President Garfield and asked for the position, arguing that the poor territorial secretary had been forced to do the work of governing every time the governor decided he wanted to pop off to Washington to, I don't know, grab a pack of smokes or something. But by the summer of 1881, the citizens seemed to be behind the idea. They were disgruntled and impatient over their absentee governor. The political waters also began to swirl as the sharks could smell blood in the water, so a lot of the complaints against Fremont also contained adverts for who they felt should be his replacement. One Tombstone resident wrote that the governor was, quote, "...positively incompetent," while another wrote in a satirical article that ran in the Los Angeles Tribune, quote, "...it has never been safe to assume that Governor Fremont was in Arizona, and the public business, if the office is not a veritable sinecure." must have suffered greatly. End quote. And for the record, a sinecure is a position that grants its holder authority, but requires little to no work. Finally, all this caught somebody's attention somewhere because Fremont was given a choice. He could either return to Arizona, or he could resign. And he, of course, resigned on October 11, 1881, In his resignation letter, he made some excuse about being in Washington to help arrange the handling of Indian affairs, but finding that his powers as governor were limited, he couldn't be of any use in that department, so private interests were the only options now available to him. After he was gone, the tombstone epitaph printed an editorial stating its hope that President Chester A. Arthur would appoint someone worthy of the office and would, quote, not send us another a barnacle to be fed from the public crib, end quote. and again for the benefit of everyone who does not have a dictionary sitting in front of you, a limicenary means someone who is dependent on charity. The Pathfinder never really did find the fortune he had been seeking. He retired from public life and moved to New York, either in Sleepy Hollow or Terrytown, which should be familiar to all you Washington Irving fans out there where the family lived on the income his wife brought in. Fremont died in 1890 at the age of 77. Wagner said it best when he remarked that the small part Arizona played in Fremont's life is evident from his tombstone in Piermont Cemetery in Rockland, New York. Out of the 50 lines chiseled into the grave marker, one says, quote, Governor of Arizona Territory, 1878-1882, end quote. And with Fremont now gone, it's time for us to leave things for this week as well. But join me next week as we once again hit the rewind button and discuss other things happening in the 1870s. This time, we need to catch up with that current little town and soon-to-be-capital metropolis, Phoenix, and see how it was laying the foundation for its eventual political domination. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, And you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.